Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us for our show today. You know, I think there are a great many of us who feel really fortunate that we live in a city as beautiful as Atlanta or the suburbs. Um, Tree-lined streets, um, magnolias, azaleas, hydrangeas, all the other gorgeous flowering uh, bushes that, that bloom in our communities. Uh, makes us feel that we're living in a wonderful place. The reality, though, is there are a great many people in metro Atlanta who aren't happy with where they live. Not only are they not happy with where they live, but they live under dangerous circumstances. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a year-long investigation of conditions at apartment complexes around the metro area that are they call dangerous dwellings, where there is persistent crime, including uh, murders, where plumbing in some of the apartments doesn't work, where um, the heat and air conditioning is on and off, where they, there are vermin, roaches, rats, and indifferent management that has very little interest in taking care of any of the problems. 272 dangerous dwellings, at least based on this year-long investigation by the AJC. And, and so today, we're going to dig into that investigation, which I think shocks the conscience of, consciences of a great many of us. Um, and we're joined, as we are every Thursday, by the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Kevin, I'm glad you're here for this conversation. Let me just introduce your investigative reporters who have been on this story, um, Alan Judd and Willoughby Mariano. Thank you both for being here as well. Kevin, can I, let me, let me start with uh, this. Um, local journalism is under some assault. Uh, there are fewer and fewer local uh, newspapers uh, around our state and, and around the country. Um, and, of course, it's under assault because of people who talk about fake news. This investigation, which your reporters worked on for well over a year, strikes me as an example why local journalism like you do and like I hope we do at GPB is so crucial to all of us. I agree with you, Bill, and thank you for uh, having uh, the, uh, taking the time to talk about this topic. Uh, you and I have discussed the idea of doing the show for a while now, and I'm so glad that we're going to be joined by two of our best and I would say most persistent, hardest working and committed reporters, right? And yeah, I mean, this is an example of what um, we feel so passionately about as local journalists, which is these. this is the kind of story that is incredibly hard to tell, took a long time to put together, and really there's no one else to do it. 
I understand that, you know, national media has been paying more and more attention to Georgia and placing reporters here, but no one is going to wake up in the morning and spend all day long for a year trying to figure something like this out. And as we get into this discussion, I think your listeners will be amazed at what it takes to do a story like this and how hard uh, these folks worked at it. So I can't wait to get into the discussion. Yeah, I'd like to start by talking about some of the findings. And then as we get uh, move forward, it will be interesting to hear how this all came together. Alan, uh, let me start uh, with you. Um, you and Willoughby began your series of reports uh, by looking at a comp apartment complex called The Life at Greenbrier, which a lot, like a lot of these complexes, have these sort of aspirational uh, names that make them sound as if they're wonderful places to live. Why, Alan, did you choose The Life at Greenbrier and the story of one woman who lived there to begin this series? It really uh, exemplifies what we what we were looking at and what we found after many even you know many months of, of reporting to to identify some of the worst places in in the city, and and, and throughout the suburbs. But um, it is owned or was owned at the time. It's actually been sold yet again since we uh, since we wrote about it. But it was owned by a private equity firm out of New York, and we've what we were finding is there are. A phenomenal number of these complexes, these, these rental properties in low-income areas, that are have been gobbled up by private equity firms, mostly out of New York or Los Angeles, sometimes out of Chicago, other places. But uh, these large investors have bought up these properties. It's it's the business model is to. Uh, do as little upkeep and as little improvement as possible. Maybe they'll slap some siding on the side, you know, on the buildings, or maybe throw a little paint around. But it's generally, you know, very cosmetic improvements. Uh, they do little for security of the of the property, and raise the rents usually. Don't don't do maintenance and then sell the property for a large profit after a year or so. And this was a really good example of that. It had gone through a number of of, of outside private investors, um, and it was uh, a place that a lot of crime was taking place. There were a lot of uh, housing code violations, a lot of just really un untenable conditions for people. And we we... We uh, we found one building where uh, up, upstairs a, a man was shot to death uh, in the in the breezeway when the woman who was uh, in the who had just taken her kids downstairs to put in her her mother's car to send them away for the evening and she got back and there's a man dying right in front of her door uh, and then downstairs in the very same building a woman who actually heard that that gunshot but earlier had been in her apartment with her kids when a bullet just flew through the through the wall from outside uh landed right in their living room right where they had been just a minute earlier or so so it just really shows the the um the desperate conditions that people have to live in in places like this uh all over the city all over the suburbs of Atlanta 
So will it be the, the, the danger from violence is obviously, you know, something that we will continue to talk about today. But, but Tori Houston, who is the woman who Alan just referred to, who you open your series with, um, as he said, heard a shooting, found a dead body outside her apartment. But what other ways it was life difficult for Tori Houston? And how does she reflect the kind of people, the kind of conditions that people in these apartment complexes all over the metro area are dealing with day in and day out? Well, the circumstances differ from apartment to apartment, but let me tell you, I mean, we actually went uh, uh, and knocked on several doors at the apartment complex. And at one, um, the gentleman who lived there uh, showed us uh, that his his sink didn't work. I mean, he had no running water in his sink. Um, The, uh, you know, other people showed us overflowing toilets, um, uh, pipes that burst that weren't fixed. Uh, One man had a, a pipe that burst after a bullet shot through it. This is a completely separate um, incident. Um, Alexis um, and her children were living in an apartment infested with roaches. We, we sat with her as they crawled over, uh, you know, all over the place. And it wasn't because of her housekeeping. Um, this was an unusual circumstance. She could not get um, uh, anyone to, um, you know, to actually do the basics to, um, um, you know, to exterminate uh, these roaches. Um, so she sat there with a giant can of raid on her uh, living room uh uh you know table uh and 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 cooked while you know trying to keep these roaches out of her um her food and uh you know and keep them off her kids as they were doing their homework um these are i mean we've had uh raw sewage all over the place at, at another apartment complex i mean we've had um I mean, any sort of horror you could imagine that would make life miserable on a daily basis, you know, uh, AC not working in the middle of the summer while a a child who was sick with COVID, you know, had just gone home um, from from a long stay uh, in in the ICU uh, and and and. uh, You know, management wasn't terribly interested in in making fixes. this is chronic. And again, you know, we're talking about 200 uh, and well, in the end, we, we ended up with more than 280. Um, and the number keeps climbing as we um, uh, as we get more information. Bill, you know, uh, one of the remarkable things about the series, and I think people, you know, obviously can find it at AJC.com is, um, as Willoughby described, the We talk to, they talk to a lot of real people really living there, really trying to survive. The statistics, the big picture, the, and we'll get into the enormous effort to actually get all the information about about these complexes, which is really one of the great achievements of the series. Uh, but I mean, the, you know, just to take this Greenbrier place for uh, ex- the life at Greenbrier, again, which has changed names. I um, I know it's called something different now, but I mean, in a in a from 2017 to mid 2021, there were over 4000 police calls to the place and the, it, it, there were 20 rapes at the place and there were uh, over 160 reports of shots fired. I mean, this is what people are living with in their everyday lives. Alan. 
Yeah, yeah, um, and and of course, and it is, it is not unique by any means. It's probably not even the worst place that we that we necessarily heard about or looked at, but it was really emblematic of the entire issue. And we looked at one week uh, of calls to the police. There were, I think, it was forty nine calls or forty seven calls over seven days. They had um, two homicides in the same week. Um, you know numerous calls about shots being fired um fights all kinds of you know basically the vast majority of the calls involve some sort of violence or potential for violence and this is what people are living with with their kids and it's it's there but it's also at places down the street from there and it's places across town from there it's um it it is the pervasiveness of the problem that i think it really shocked me when I when I got into this deeply, uh, going back into I guess twenty twenty one now. Willoughby, uh, your um, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, Willoughby, your report indicates that there are more than thirteen thousand school aged children who live in a, just one hundred forty four of the complexes in Atlanta, Cobb, and DeKalb County that you looked at because you went and got records from uh, the schools. So thirteen thousand school aged children. Living in these conditions, it's completely unconscionable. Well, and it's an undercount um, because some school districts were not interested in uh, handing over that information. Um, but they, you know, they live with that, uh, this every day. They see children um, uh, coming in after uh, witnessing a shooting. Uh, the impacts on children seem extraordinary. Now, now, now the kids I've met. Um, you know, they, they they live through this day to day. But, you know, again, you know, recalling, you know, uh, sitting at the kitchen table with uh, uh, the family who had to deal with roaches. It was, um, uh, you know, they were so frustrated with their conditions. They were a bit embarrassed by it. They were um, they were freaked out by it. The kids were it was in the back of their mind, um, and, you know, and not only that, but, you know, there were odd discussions where, you know, just violence would come up uh, in a way that you wouldn't want a kid talking about a shooting as if it were um, kind of just something that happened, um, you know, in, in their community, um, you know, a fact of life. Uh, you know, and, and we all know, I mean, it's hard to go to school after um, a bullet has, you know, passed through your wall. Um, it's hard to concentrate uh, and do your homework um, when there's sewage in your apartment, when your toilet doesn't work, um, when, you're, when your mother's exasperated um, and, and doesn't know what to do. It's a... Um, we we see we saw this so often there were so many families with children in these apartments and because it's nearly i mean it's so difficult to find an affordable place to stay for families in Atlanta now um they're they're sort of trapped in these circumstances um you know as much as they might take on more shifts uh you know try to find better jobs it's just not possible for them to move out these are working families that can't afford to move out of these conditions so um what what's an average rent let's say we're talking about an apartment with uh what three bedrooms two baths if that if that's a common size for these apartments what what are people paying uh for these apartments it's 
it's it's not uncommon for people to be paying fifteen hundred dollars a month, even more, maybe two thousand a month in some places. Uh, the rents have gone up substantially in the low income uh, uh, apartments, just as much as they have in you know kind of the higher end places around town. Um, I think it, you know it's possible to get a two bedroom apartment in some places for a thousand twelve hundred dollars a month, but these are not inexpensive places to live. You know, in, in the big picture, uh, it's important to note that this speaks to the larger problem of affordable housing, which the city and the and the metro region continue to wrestle with and is of grave concern. Um, and, you know, what I would point out is um, what there, you know, there are a number of challenges with this uh, with this problem. But one of them is that if a you know, a county or a city or some enforcement agency came in and shut down an apartment complex, then you suddenly have created the problem of hundreds of people who don't have anywhere to live. And what are you going to do? Of course, the flip side to this, um, which we point out in the series, is that these many of these homes are uh, subsidized housing. So the owners have this business model of you know, the rent is in part paid by we that by we tax, you know, the taxpayers. And so they they're taking advantage of taxpayers, not just with getting the rent, but also with all of the police and fire and emergency services that are required to at least try to respond to the problems in these places. They are costing every one of us an enormous amount of money that it's just not apparent to us, but it's a problem for all of us. Um, I, I want to back up, if if I may, and talk about how we get to a situation. You you point out in the series, Willoughby and Alan, that ninety uh, percent of the ninety seven percent of the uh, properties that you identified in your reporting are uh, major, majority non white uh, residents. Um, and I want, but I want to back up on the whole notion of how we get to a place like this because I think. It's fascinating history. Um, the f and you talk about it in your reporting. Will it be the first public housing project in the United States was built here in Atlanta. It was Techwood Homes. And it was 1935. FDR, the president of the United States, uh, dedicated the project, saying people who could never before get a decent roof over their heads will live here in reasonable comfort and healthful, healthful worthwhile uh, surroundings. He was at Grant Field at, at Georgia Tech when he made that speech. It was an all-white housing uh, complex. And Mariano, the, at Emory University's library, you can look at movies of tech, of, of, uh, tech homes that look as if you're living in a splendid or wonderful condition. But again, it was all white. And over the decades, public housing changed entirely, Tech, Techwood Homes being a great example, to being uh, uh, primarily for black residents and increasingly that vision of them being almost a utopian kind of place to live changed entirely. And, 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 and you know, those public housing projects, now Techwood Homes has been torn down uh, and so you have these private apartment complexes taking their place. Have I got that about right? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, before they were considered a place of uplift. Um, and as the racial makeup changed, uh, they were a kind of um, housing, a, you know, became a last chance kind of housing situation. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, some scholars have noted, you know, did have a level of political power. The residents had political power through tenant organizing. Uh, and now in these private complexes, it's a it's a very different story. Um, you know, you do um, have uh, you you really it's very easy for uh, managers to uh, harass tenants who simply want their um, you know sewage to not run through their uh, apartments. And in fact, you know, we did have um, part th uh, three of our our series did have tenants who wanted to get, you know, get basic stuff done. In fact, during the, uh, during the pan, yeah, the beginning of the pandemic, they, they just wanted to have assistance getting laptops uh, to their children so they could uh, learn and, and food um, and, and basic cleaning supplies so they could eat um, since many of them lost um, income at that time. And, and uh, at Trestle Tree Apartments uh, in Grant Park and Ormwood Park, uh, you know, the people who tried to help them were trespassed. Uh, you know, residents were told to identify them if they came onto the property and they were threatened with arrest. It, it's a very different situation than it was, um, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, um, where uh, affordable, um, low cost housing uh, was was supposed to be improving the lives of tenants. Yeah. And another part Alan, of that history is. Yeah, another part of the history is is that not only was Atlanta the first city in America to have public housing, it was also the first city in America to to tear down all of its public housing yeah. or the vast yeah. majority of it. Um, the, the decision was made in the '90s by the housing authority and by the city that they wanted to shift shift to this public private model that's it, it's called, and all of the uh, housing public housing except basically for some um, elderly residents is gone and replaced by apartment complexes that that really aren't uh looking to have to house people with without a lot of resources and a lot of money uh for the most part and you know rather than deal with the issues that came up in public housing over the years which was a lot of crime and a lot of a lot of um uh, you know deterioration they simply got rid of it uh, if so what we what we ended up with is essentially the same um, problem as we had with housing projects which is large concentrations of of people who are poor or, or maybe don't have the resources or the ability to 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 you know demand for better but it's all dispersed now rather than being in the same place that we that we all knew all right, I've got to get to the first break of the show. Um, but having talked about, uh, in, in many ways, the conditions, which we now have a fairly good picture of, at least, your series goes into many more examples of how people are living in these awful conditions. Well, when we come back, let's look at a couple of other aspects of your series that, that really, again, shocked me, at least, um, the business model these uh, venture capitalist firms in the in the Northeast that come in and buy these complexes, and then at the fact that enforcement is lax 
and there are few laws which really protect tenants, all of which was a very important part of your series. So let's get to our first break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're talking today uh, about the Atlanta Journal-Constitution series, Dangerous Dwellings, um, with the reporters, the investigative reporters who did the work on the story, Alan Judd and Willoughby Mariano, and uh, we're joined on, as we are on Thursdays, by the editor-in-chief of the AJC, Kevin Rowley. Kevin, I do want to talk about the businesses that, that own these uh, complexes, but I want to start it with a personal story from the series that I think tells us something about who these people are and how they operate in, in their work. Um, Alan and Willoughby uh, talked to a woman named Olive who said she repeatedly asked apartment managers to repair the plumbing in her apartment. She and her son had to go to friends' apartments just to use the bathroom. Forgive my language, Olive said, but I was really pissed. She went to apartment management and she said, I'm not going to pay my $1,000 plus monthly rent until the repairs were completed. And Kevin, rather than fix the plumbing, the complex filed court papers to have Olive evicted. Now, she ended up getting it going to court. She made a settlement to pay a certain percentage of the rent. She kept the apartment, but it was six months after she first complained before that toilet was repaired. And a lot of this speaks to the kind of management that these apartment complexes have and what the owners of these buildings allow to take place. Right. And and that's why this idea that they're owned um, uh, from a distance and we, we spent a uh, particular time profiling uh, a guy who owns a terrible complex who lives in literally in wealth in Beverly Hills, because from a distance, it's really all about in how much are we investing? What are our operating costs and what are our profit margins and how can we prepare this for sale? to to uh, turn a profit for our investors. And some of this is re- literally um, the best way to do that is to get away with all that you can and do as little as you can for these people who are, you know, I mean, people cannot take days off to go to court or hire expensive lawyers to really get in a fight like this. They have no chance under these circumstances. Yeah, uh, Alan, you know, I mean, you... go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I I was just going to say that what private equity does with rental housing is no different than what it does with, uh, you know, a manufacturing firm they buy or a, or a newspaper that they buy or any anything else. It is to cut their expenses as down to the bone, sell off the profitable parts, and you know, cut the get rid of the things that don't make money. And for them, in in a, the apartment context, again, it is to defer maintenance as long as they possibly can um, and to raise the, the the rent as much as they possibly can 
in in a short period because the real payoff is not in collecting rent from from people it is from selling the property to someone else who will do the same thing willoughby well and and, and let me you you can't emphasize this enough i think if if the ordinary person um drove through one of these complexes they would think oh my goodness how could you possibly make money off of this thing it's it's falling apart you, you couldn't possibly charge high enough rents um and uh and and the repairs to, to fix up this place to make it livable would cost way too much for this to, to make money but over and over again especially in this uh in the recent market of the, since you know about 2015 2018 we've seen these complexes sell for tens of millions of dollars more than what they were acquired for just just a couple of years before it's it's a it's uh you know it's it's not even fix and flip which is what you'd expect with a single family home it's just flip it's it's just uh and, and you know because they're gone um after just a couple of years this means that accountability becomes very complicated it's hard for local um solicitors offices to keep up with who owns the properties and to, you know, and to follow up until they make fixes, because the next thing they know, um, you know, there's a new owner there. Uh, so opportunities to get big projects done, such as sewage issues, flooding issues, um, you know, the ones that make tenants the most miserable um, and invite vermin uh, and, and, you know, and other problems, uh, you know, that that just goes by the wayside. Yeah. And it's Kevin, here's finding just, out who the owner is. Oh, go ahead, Helen. Yeah, I was going to say, even, even, even finding out who the real owners are is very difficult. We spent months, actually, at, at various times going through property records and corporate records, trying to determine, you know, who is behind the LLC, behind the Limited Liability Corporation that's listed as the owner. And that's how you get back to these large um sort of faceless private equity firms basically it's for the most part um they, they don't make it make it obvious and they don't make it known that they are actually the people who own it you know alan uh went over something sort of quickly there that i'd like to take a pause bill and, and see if i can get uh these two to talk about this but the incredible complexity of this reporting is a you know just a real point of pride for me and and everyone at the Atlanta Journal Constitution because there isn't some handy dandy database to go find out what's going on at these complexes. It was this elaborate effort and persistent long term effort to look at the complexes, ownership records, as Alan mentions, police reports, fire reports, all this information about code violations, and literally they created their own database with the help of you know several other people in the newsroom so that they could assess these complexes so uh, will be jump in here and alan you know maybe you can follow because this is like the real achievement of this series okay but wait i want to go back I, I love the idea of going behind the scenes i want to do that but i want to start it even at the very beginning whose idea was it to pursue this does this come from an editor, Allen and Willoughby, who says this might be worth looking at? Um, it, yeah, and then it, assuming, okay, Alan, so it comes from, okay. And then how do Willoughby, Mariano, and Alan Judd 
sit down together and say, well, this is something we need to work on together. Are you assigned to do it? Do you come together because you have a relationship of working? I I love stuff like this. Um, Alan, tell us a little about that, and then you, Willoughby. Um, The idea came originally from one of our investigative editors, uh, Lois Norder, who has been at the paper for a number of years, who has been keeping up with the, the basically the homicides and fires at apartment complexes and just saw that the same ones were popping up all the time uh, in news stories, police reports, and so on. Um, and I began looking at it uh, while Willoughby was away on a fellowship for, a, for part of the first part of uh, 2021. So when she got back, we, we sat down together and and just sort of talk this through. She had written a lot about housing and had had a lot of sources, a lot of knowledge about it. We sat down, I think, for probably three hours on her front porch and talked about <laughs> all these all these issues because I, I had you know kind of educated myself for a few months before uh, learning a lot of things that she already knew, and we were able to see pretty quickly and map out a, a plan to go after what we saw was was a really substantial story that had not really been told in Atlanta or or much of anywhere else really in America, which is again goes back to this ownership uh, business model, the just total um, despair that people have to live in because of of the lack of, of decent affordable housing in Atlanta, which is also a problem really throughout the country. So, okay, Willoughby, uh, Kevin said that this required deep research, creating databases based on police records, uh, trying to figure out who the owners of these complexes were. Talk about some of those challenges that you had to overcome in the more than one year that you worked on this project. So what we had to do was figure out which apartment complexes had the most crime. Now, now you would think today, you know, uh, you watch CSI or what have you, uh, that that you'd be able to call up the police or send them an email and they would be able to send you, um, you know, crime statistics that would uh, reveal all. Um, But that's not how it works. We have dozens of jurisdictions here, um, some that run on literally IBM reel-to-reel tape computers that, you know, date back uh, 40, you know, 50 years, um, and and some which have fairly sophisticated systems such as um, Atlanta. Uh, We have uh, jurisdictions that don't um, do any interior inspections. So if your toilet is overflowing and you can't get it fixed for, for a week, um, they, 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 they might not come to your house. And so that means that there is no data uh, for that kind of an, an interior uh, 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 violation, I guess, or, um, you know, problem. So, uh, so the data is often not comparable. Each police and code enforcement office um, is run differently by different types of, um, uh, you know, administrative departments. Uh, we had to, and, and not all of them want to even give over this information. We are still fighting um, with certain departments who insist uh, that, that it'll cost them thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to give us basic information about how many crimes took place at a location. And let me add, it is even more difficult than that because 
um, a lot of these apartment complexes, uh, I mean, they might advertise there at a particular address, um, but they might have hundreds of addresses, uh, you know, or at least dozens on uh, on different streets. So we had to go physically to a lot of them. Uh, we couldn't go to all of them, um, but we had to go to a lot of them and go uh, building by building, uh, driving through, walking through, um, and, you know, trying to figure out which addresses belong to which apartment complexes, which can be a dicey proposition. Some are so poorly maintained, you cannot read the numbers on the buildings. Um, you know, uh, we were sort of mysteriously followed by a van. Uh, I and another colleague were mysteriously followed by a van. Uh, I was, you know, and I just was like, let's get out of here. <laughs> we can't be here anymore. It's not safe. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, and, and this is something that, uh, well, not only that, but once the information comes in, you have to analyze it. Um, you have to organize it in some way. Um, uh, you have to, um, uh, you know, make sense of it all. What's a dangerous dwelling? What isn't? Um, there are a lot of places where that I wouldn't have a dog live in that we did not include uh, in our list um, because we decided, okay, let's set a high standard here. Let's let let's 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 make sure there's not a lot of um, uh, you know disagreement uh, on a location being dangerous. Uh, so uh, yeah, it took a lot of work. Uh, Kevin, last word before we got to get to a break. Well, I want to say a couple things uh, first. Uh, will be mentioned, you know, the volume of information and a, a so and the attempt to organize it. So I know from talking to people who are housing advocates and concerned with this issue that we have revealed patterns and trends and information that no one else has discovered because there's no capability, there's no common database. There, you know, people do a lot of work in this area, but we have found out things that people who care about this needed to know and change the conversation. Second, she talked about organizing. What she didn't mention was verification of the information. These two and the investigative team with the AJC are fanatical about making sure things are right. In fact, they sent certified letters to every apartment complex saying, here is what we have about you. Here is what we're going to report. And if you want to dispute it, here's how to do that. Just to make sure no one could complain about accuracy. I, I want to mention two things before we have to get to a break. Um, first of all, thank you for helping us understand even just a little bit how much goes into trying to put an investigation like this together. But I want to go back just for a moment to these equity companies that own uh, many of these complexes. And I want to read from your reporting because, again, shocking. You say, owners of some of Metro Atlanta's most challenged apartment complexes make no secret of the fact that renting apartments to poor people can be extremely profitable. Quote, with prosperity, you can count on strong performance, boasts the website of Prosperity Capital Partners, the Florida-based owner of Royal Oaks in southwest Atlanta, and 14 other complexes in Georgia. Their website is headlined, quote, putting investors first in 2003, going way back in time putting investors first. That, to me, says just about everything we need to know that you go into in such depth in your series. Let's get to our final break. Back with more in a minute.
I, I want to make just one more personal observation and then talk to everybody about why these complexes are able to get away with it. What's going on? Why is there no enforcement? Why aren't laws out there protecting uh, people from these conditions? But here's my personal observation. I come out of the Chicago newspaper business back in the 60s and 70s. It was a glorious time for Chicago newspapers. We had four daily newspapers at that point, and we had long-term investigations that were fairly commonplace, the most famous being a time when the Chicago Sun-Times literally bought a tavern called, that they called the Mirage and spent more than a year documenting all the inspectors who came in to try to get bribes. That was commonplace in the newspaper business in those days. Kevin, very quickly, that kind of investigation just doesn't happen very much anymore because it's expensive. And look at Will, you know, Willoughby and Ellen spent more than a year on this. My gosh, you could have had them cranking out daily news instead of being off doing this for that long. <laughs> well, you, I agreed, Bill. And, and I do think we're a little different from a lot of uh, peer newspapers in that we we invest a lot in our investigations and want to let our subscribers know that it's going to be worth their money because they're going to find out things from us they really can't find out anywhere else. Well, I just, I, you know, I couldn't help but think about the old days in Chicago uh, when I think about your investigation, Ellen and Willoughby. All right, let's get to something really important. Uh, why the heck? Uh, one of the things we learned in your series is that these companies that buy these complexes, one of the reasons they come here is because there's little enforcement and few laws to protect uh, the residents of these places. Right, Willoughby? Yeah. Um, I mean, for instance, consider there are no minimum standards in this state for, um, you know, for, for these, uh, for the conditions, uh, living conditions inside any rental. And furthermore, um, there is no warrant of habitability. And what that means is that they are not required. There is, there is nothing in state, in, um, in state law that says, okay, um, uh, you must have potable water uh, in, in order to uh, be a, uh, in order to be habitable. Uh, you must have, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, working AC, which I think would be a luxury to a lot of these tenants. You, you must have doors that lock, which is a huge problem in a lot of these complexes. None of that stuff is explicitly stated in state law uh, as being a requirement. And, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's really a bit shocking considering that, I mean, our own polling found that 90% of respondents uh, said that Georgia should create laws that set minimum living standards uh, to rental properties. Uh, you know, so it's a, it's a complicated picture here. Other peer states such as uh, South Carolina uh, have, uh, you know, Florida, for instance, have stronger, um, uh, stronger laws than we do. Yeah, uh, Alan, beyond state, wait, let me ask you this. Are there not local ordinances uh, in, in, the in the counties that could oversee some of this? Well, the, the counties and cities are largely prohibited from, um, from adopting a lot of local ordinances that would deal with, with, with rental housing. Um, uh, they can't even create a registry of all the apartment complexes in, in their jurisdictions under state law. And, and a lot of that goes back to the legislature. There's There has been an attitude by, by a lot of members of the legislature over the years 
essentially that the people who live in places like we're talking about deserve to live there or don't deserve better. Um, I just pulled up a quote from that we had in one of our stories from a committee meeting a couple of years back on a bill that that um, really didn't do a whole lot, but it but it was you know the, some effort to to address this. And a state senator at the time, who's now retired, said, "Oftentimes these people may come from poor conditions, and so they bring with them molds, mold spores, rodents, roaches. Admittedly, these are people who don't necessarily have high levels of education. They haven't been brought up in washing your dishes and putting your food up, keeping the doors closed and your windows down. That's the kind of you know, sort of patronizing attitude that a lot of legislators have had toward toward people in the state who are." less fortunate maybe than they are uh and they don't see the need to to create laws or even to allow local governments and and to make the decision to create local ordinances that that regulate this well kevin but we also you're also talking about and i know this from reading the reporting uh that there's a pretty powerful lobby that is at the capitol where it protects these complexes from uh, uh, any kind of uh, legislation that might really crack down on their practices. Right, and I and I do think a couple things about that bill. It's important to respect the the tradition of conservative uh, politics and government in our state. It's just part of who and, and what Georgia is, and. Uh, the idea that we don't want to overregulate, but I think things have gotten to a point with a state that has become so prosperous and has become so important to really the rest of the country that we have to step back and say, look, it's very popular for politicians to stand up and just go on and on about uh, how they're going to stop crime, how they're going to fight crime, how they're going to make the streets safe. But it's not as common and because it's more complicated to realize a problem that creates crime is these housing complexes do. I mean, in fact, if you really read the series closely, you will conclude that you're really not going to do much about crime in Metro Atlanta if you don't help solve this problem. And I do think that what we need now is thoughtful state legislators and state leaders to say, look, we've got to get on this problem. We've got to figure this out. There is a way to do it. And that's what we called for in our front page editorial which is, you know, we, we published the morning the legislature opened and not something we do very often. But I think this is at the core of Georgia's future. And we are either going to solve this or let it get worse and really never get to the core of many of the most perplexing and important problems our state and city have. Kevin, to the best of my knowledge, and please correct me if I'm wrong, no one has come forward to take you up on that front page editorial, no legislator to introduce legislation about this. Not yet. We're optimistic. I think there are people who care about it, and I think there are advocates uh, in the state and in, in Atlanta who care about it, who are pushing on it. But in fact, we had a meeting with uh, Mayor Dickens yesterday where we asked him about it, and you realize that uh, it's a difficult problem and cities are uh in particular are a little hamstrung there're more that there's more that they can do there are more resources they can devote to it but we need leadership from the state you know um willoughby and then alan on this i it, it's fascinating to me kevin already said it i mean right now part of brian kemp's not part of a, a, a major portion of his agenda this legislative session is fighting crime and kevin already points out 
uh, as you reported, there is so much crime in these um, dangerous uh, apartment complexes around Metro Atlanta. I was looking at the numbers. I said twenty-eight thousand. What is a number? Will it be something like twenty-eight thousand uh, reports of, of to the police in just some of these complexes? I, I have it here somewhere, but I can't find it right right away. Oh, they account for at least 281 homicides and 20,000 serious crimes over the past five years. So it's not just like, uh, you know, it's it's not just, uh, you know, I'm thieving a, you know, a pair of shoes off your doormat. Uh, you know, this this is, you know, robbery, rape. Um, assault, aggravated assault, uh, you know, murder, again, like I said, 281 of them. And, and let me underline this point. Um, when the last portion uh, of, of, of the year's uh, stories ran, um, uh, just the day after it went online, um, one of the tenants that, I, you know, a tenant that I quoted in the lead of that story, her kid was murdered in, in a mm. sort of a, in a gunfight that took place in the apartment complex. Now, the, the reasons behind that killing were complex. Um, but, uh, you know, when you go on that apartment complex territory, you you see some stuff. It's pretty obvious that this is not a safe place. And her his mother said that she might, uh, you know, was worried that that's how he would die. Well, Alan, and there's another part of this agenda. We, you know, the governor and legislative leaders said we got to fight gang crime. We're going to, you know, uh, pass new laws that will really double down on recruitment of gangs and that sort of thing. But it's in these complexes that gangs can operate freely. Right. And one of the things that I, I found really interesting was we, we, we spoke to criminologists and to, to police officials about this. It's it's really not even largely speaking the people who live in these kinds of complexes who are committing the crimes, they are seen as sort of easy victims by people who who are in sort of the business of crime, um, and when 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 the owners don't take care of keeping the garbage picked up off the off the ground or keeping the sewage from from spewing around all over the place or they don't fix broken windows they don't they don't keep keep the place up to a minimum standard that's that just tells them that there there is not no interest in by the owners to keep the place safe it tells people come on in and, and commit crimes here uh, Kevin, we're, you know we're just about out of time, but one other real quick thing, business development is also uh, high on the agenda of legislative leaders and the governor. Here's a, the, the people in these complexes, the ability for them to become part of the workforce of the future is pretty limited, I would guess, uh, based on the conditions in which they live. It's hard to be a good and reliable employee if you don't have safe and healthy living conditions. It's that simple. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Alan Judd, Willoughby, Mariano, uh, Kevin Riley, I thank you so much, first of all, for the work you put into this extraordinary series. Thank you for talking about it with us today. I really do hope it shocks the conscience of people who have heard you today and who I hope will go to AJC.com and read your series. That's it for us on our show today. We're back with a brand new Political Rewind, of course, tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care 
and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.